Hello and welcome to the first episode of the second series of Gigawaters. A podcast brought to you by SG Voice and Energy Voice Out Loud in paid partnership with Orsted. These discussions are leading the global energy conversations, examining how offshore wind and Scotwind in particular can propel Scotland towards energy transition. The deployment of 11 gigawatts of offshore wind in the next seven years and helping Scotland reach its goal of net zero by 2045. The goal for Scotland is not just to accelerate the energy transition, but also to unlock billions in investment in Scotland, not just in projects, but in terms of long-term supply chain capacity, innovation and more. There are many countries looking to build industrial hubs about renewable resources, so innovation is going to be key. I'm Felicia Jackson, the editor of Energy Voice's sister publication, SG Voice, and joining me today is my co-host, Nick Ritchie, who's worked on oil and gas development and capital projects in and around Aberdeen for 20 years, before he actually made that shift from black to green when he joined then Dong Energy's wind division back in 2015. He's currently the development director for Stromar, the JV consisting of Renantis, Blue Float and Orsted. Our special guest for this episode is Richard Britton. He's himself had 15 years in the offshore wind industry and he's the relatively new global head of offshore wind at Renantis. Thank you both for joining me today. I'm sure it's going to be a really interesting discussion. To come to you first, Nicholas, can you give us an update on where we are with Scotwind following the successful completion of the auction? Yeah, sure. Well, there's been several significant changes uh, since we last checked in on Scotwind itself. Most notably was the size of the prize for Scotwind. The last series of podcasts that we did considered the economic and the social transformational impact of Scotwind based on just over 10 gigawatt of award. And of course, the actual award was substantially more than this, consisting of 10 gigawatt of fixed and 14.8 gigawatt of floating sites. So with Scotland clearing, the total uh, comes up to around 28 gigawatt in total, which is roughly three times the size of the prize that we contemplated previously. We, Orsted, and our JV partners, Blue Float Energy and Renantis, were awarded site NE3, which is a one gigawatt site located approximately 50 kilometres due east of Wick. We signed the option lease agreement with the Crown Estate Scotland early in 2022, which kicked off our project development activity. This site we call Stromar. And in accordance with this, we're putting in serious development capital to address the planning consent requirements, to screen various technical solutions, to optimise and get to a point where we can take investment decision as quickly as possible so that we can get Scottish green electrons into the national grid and decarbonise the UK electricity supply. The other big change, uh, and I have to say this, is on the geopolitical stage with the really tragic war and the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. And of course, how this has disrupted the supply and demand of various commodities, goods and services. And it's really emphasised at the governmental level, the real need for speed to access to cheap renewable energy as a strategic resource. Not everything has changed, however. What hasn't changed is the ambition in Scotland to deliver on these Scotland projects, not only, as I said, to provide energy security, but also to provide inward investment into the Scottish supply chain, to provide lots of renewable energy jobs in, the, in, the, in, in Scotland, and also, of course, for the wider benefit to communities, small and large, all across the country. And what hasn't changed 
are some of the challenges we face, such as access to a skilled workforce, access to the grid in a timely manner, planning consent issues, and how we select and serial manufacture floating substructures at scale, for example. Thanks, Nick. That is, let's face it, a huge amount of things that need to be dealt with. Um, so, Richard, coming to you, what do you think are this, the really central things that need to be addressed in order to make Scotwinds be the best it can be? As Nick laid out there, there's, there's, a, there's a number of factors. Um, there's been a challenge in the UK, uh, and there's a real opportunity here for the Scottish Government to deliver with regards to the permitting process. We've, we've suffered delays um, in offshore wind for the last uh, six or seven years with, with major infrastructure projects. Uh, taking longer than they should through the planning system. And there's been many conversations about how we should seek to accelerate the process of delivery of consents and permitting uh, and ensuring there's a more holistic approach to it. And I, and I think in the first instance, there's, there's the first opportunity is, is to deliver these decisions on time. Um, and that would give the offshore wind industry a much greater feel for certainty within delivery of the projects. So for the Scottish government, there's 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 a real opportunity here to make sure that we've got a clear process for seeking permission for consents. We've got engagement at, at all levels of government and regulators with regards to uh, delivering the right mitigations to ensure that all of these projects can go ahead. And there's no reason why they can't all go ahead if we have the right engagement and the right drive to do so. But also the decision-making process is done promptly, it's done robustly, and it's safe from judicial review as well, which seems to be, again, a growing trend is that uh, post-decision uh, projects are held up whilst uh, they are under legal challenge. So we'll be delighted to see the Scottish government stepping up in this particular point, given that these projects are largely driven by those. Though spinning quite quickly into grid, um, some of the grid solutions, again, it's great to see that National Grid is stepping up here. They're, they're doing holistic network designs. They're looking at strategic delivery of grid across uh, offshore wind in the UK as well as Scotland and that's fantastic to see because one of the biggest challenges we've had recently is uh, the way that the UK grid has been set up is that each project individually comes ashore and when you're looking at the number of projects that we want to deliver in the UK that's clearly having a sizable impact on shore with local communities so holistic network design is, is a fantastic thing um, but a until we have that clear picture from National Grid, it's very difficult for projects to move forwards with certainty on where their grid connections might be. And also from a timing perspective as well, the length of time it's taken for these grid connections to be made available um, is meaning that we're not bringing these projects to construction as quickly as perhaps we might do. There are other factors that, that uh, come into play there. So it's not world ending by any stretch of the imagination, but we do need a brisk um, a decision from National Grid on how it's going to be approached. And then behind uh, the National Grid decisions is actually the the competition rules that sit around uh, how the transmission asset works. Uh, now in the UK, what traditionally happens is that the developer will build both the wind farm and then the transmission asset, and then through a regulated sale, will divest that transmission asset to a third party. We as developers are not clear at the moment as to how that will be dealt with when you look at holistic network design. And this is you know, quite technical in nature, but fundamentally the transmission assets can cost anywhere up to one billion pounds. So as developers, we want to be very clear about how that money is going to be recovered and ensuring that it's done in an economic way. So we're going to need some clear guidance from Ofgem very quickly on the back of the network design works that are doing it again. 
Ofgem are very much aware of this and the, the sooner they're bringing that to the table and engaging with developers and potential asset owners will be fantastic because that will that will speed things along. The reason I mentioned that uh, having an impact on consenting is actually some of the suggestions are that uh, some of the Scottish projects may end up going south of the border and that's a different consenting regime. So we'll need uh, the UK government's decision-making bodies tied in with the Scottish government to make sure that decisions for the entirety of projects are, are brought forward at an appropriate time. Uh, Nick touched on um, technology and skills and infrastructure and ports and that again is another key element. There's a real, uh, a massive opportunity and one that we've talked about throughout the whole process of Scotland um, is how that's going to lead uh, the charge for investment in Scotland uh, through supply chain skills, port development and the green ports announcement again was a, a great thing to see on the East Coast to help deliver offshore wind and, and real tangible benefits to local communities. And, and that should not be ignored, that there's a huge amount that needs to be done. And I think developers really want to see support through that process of making sure that the ports infrastructure is in place in good time, that we are really driving the skills agenda um, at every level. We need people that are, you know, industry experts, but we need to see generations to come coming through schools and colleges and universities and we need to really be targeting those those people and those institutions to make sure that they're delivering the right people into the industry as we as we step forward we've seen real real growth along the east coast of england uh, through the round three offshore wind process where colleges and schools uh, have turned their attention to delivering courses that that support our industry and we absolutely want to see that across the, you know, primarily probably the east coast of Scotland, noting that there are projects, fixed projects on the west coast and in the north coast, uh, and now off the, the northern islands as well. So there's an opportunity there. Um, we should be grasping it with both hands and developers, governments and any other investment bodies. We really should be working together to try and make sure that we have the right opportunities made available for delivery. We're investing at the right time. We're investing with certainty of what's to come uh, and a lot of that can come from support certainly through both UK and Scottish government. And I think this is a really really interesting point that you're making because what you're talking about is the fact that in order to accelerate what's happening we really needed a sort of ecosystem an educational investment training skills policy ecosystem around offshore wind. How do you think we go about getting that. What are the steps you think we need to take? Because it's one thing to say that politicians need to speak to each other and that we need consistency. But what does that look like? And, and who do we need to get on board to make it happen? So I think I think the word ecosystem is is, is quite apt. Um, and what we need to do here, you know, there's not one single thing that, that needs to happen. There's many, many different things that need to fall into place. And how we do that uh, is, is going to be very, very difficult. Uh, you know, the, as, as I mentioned at the, in my introduction, the, the scope and scale of the Scotland Win, uh, almost 28 gigawatts to be developed over the next 10 or 15 years is absolutely astronomical. And, and I, I really can't think of any other country in the world that's really attempted this. Um, so how do we do it? That That is the key question. Um, we certainly need to work together more closely, uh, uh, some of the things we need to do is to is to consider that uh, you know this this dreaded word collaboration. Um, 
you know, collaboration between the developers, collaboration between the enterprise communities, collaboration between the, the government, as Richard mentioned, and really try to look at the where we are strong uh, already in the supply chain, where we're strong in our innovation hubs, where we can deliver, you know, what are the core strengths coming out of our skills base, and really leverage upon that uh, based upon, you could say, not so much a project by project basis, but more on a capacity level basis. So we look at it holistically, uh, just like the National Grid has looked at the, the grid connections offshore in a holistic manner coming in, we perhaps need to look at the scope and scale of the challenge holistically across all the different avenues, across all the different uh, areas of, of expertise and so on and so forth, and really uh, leverage that, really build upon that as, as a capacity base and not uh, project by project. Nick, that's really interesting. But I think one of the things that I'd love to understand more is what we mean by collaboration. Because we've talked uh, in the past about how collaboration means different things to different people. So how do we go about building and connecting this ecosystem, this collaborative approach? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I'm glad to say that the collaboration is, is starting already based upon what we've seen uh, in, 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 in business just now. So we see collaboration uh, across the various sectors. We see it in the enterprise agencies. We see it between the different developers. And collaboration is key uh, to the success of the Scotland projects. I think, however, there is a, a danger in this word collaboration. Um, and just to reflect on that, we've talked to many, many suppliers who say to companies like ourselves uh, that there is a slightly different view of collaboration between the developers and the uh, supply chain. And really what we hear from the suppliers is that collaboration to them, at least from a developer point of view, is that they drop their prices and they accelerate their deliveries as quickly as possible. So you could say it becomes a bit of a, a unilateral view of collaboration from the developer side. Um, but of course, collaboration in its truest sense, in its purest sense, is, is more than that. It's obviously more bilateral than unilateral. And obviously, going forward, we need to have this collaboration. And however we do it is a very interesting discussion in and of itself. But we need to have a situation where we have uh, stable and sustainable opportunities in the supply chain. And really what that means is it's not a race to the bottom in terms of the price or the quality or the delivery and so on and so forth. It's really... How do we create sustainable opportunities for Scotland and Scottish suppliers? And how, as we in the developer group uh, work together to create that environment for the supply chain? Because the suppliers need uh, consistency. You know, they need a long-term view of the market. They, they, they don't need this one-and-done, uh, boom-and-bust type um, environment they, they need long-term consistency so that, that's definitely something on us something that we need to do to work together to uh, to establish that and, and make sure that that happens uh, also um, collaboration as I mentioned before uh, needs to happen and is happening in the enterprise agencies and I'm, I'm so glad to see uh, and we're also very privileged to take part in the collaborative framework 
uh, working group where uh, there is the uh, strategic investment model, which is a means by which we can identify investment opportunities in the Scottish supply chain. The first one being uh, ports and infrastructure. And I believe there's others to do with uh, mooring systems and so on. But that really is a, a great collaborative fr framework where we can identify these investment opportunities, as I said, and uh, the Scottish government will provide the means by which uh, investment is made uh, in conjunction with the developers. So that, that is something that's really quite key to this, the success of collaboration. Thank you. Richard, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think one of the, the key frustrations, I would say, from me is that um, we, we've seen government agencies historically really act within within their own gift. So parts of uh, groups w which have a very specific uh, set of instructions effectively to follow, and they don't appear to have due cognizance to what, what the aim, the, the government aim, uh, government targets are seeking to achieve. And for me, that that's one of the, the the key drivers going forward is we all need to be pushing in the same direction. The, the reason we're delivering offshore wind is because we've identified there's a climate emergency. The, the, the world has set climate targets. The EU has set climate targets. The UK government has set climate targets. And the Scottish government has set climate targets. And that's why we're doing this. We're, we're driving in that direction to meet these targets, to, to decarbonize the economy, um, to try and protect the earth from... Uh, global temperature rises and that that's that's our aim here we're, we're, we should all be aiming and pushing in that direction rather than trying to carve up certain elements of, of personal interest to an uh, to an extent and I think that to me is when I think of the word collaboration that the collaboration is is working towards delivering on net zero targets on delivering the fight against climate change and if we're, we're all doing that together then, then this will come, and if that's what every drive is. That's excellent. I think this is a really good time to take a break because we'll be right back to actually talk about how we turn that understanding of the vision and the goal into a reality. Orsted is one of the world's largest renewable energy companies and in 2021 was ranked the most sustainable energy company in the world for the third consecutive year. With more than 30 years of experience, we are the global leader in offshore wind, with 7.6 gigawatts already installed across Europe, the USA and Asia-Pacific. But we're just getting started and hope to invest a further £12 billion in Scotland alone in the next decade. We are taking tangible action to help create a world which runs entirely on green energy, leveraging our capabilities and insights to help countries and companies in their green transformations as we accelerate the fight against climate change together. Join us on the journey at orsted.co.uk. So we've discussed the fact that holistic grid design is going to be a really important part of accelerating development. We know that joined-up policymaking is a critical part of what's going on. Um, and we know that we need to identify what and where we need to invest. But perhaps, you know, one of the more important questions is what do we need to do on the ground? And by that, I'm thinking about local infrastructure, about green ports and about skills. Nick, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you've, uh, you've identified most of the key points that we need to address going forward. Skills is a very interesting one. I was actually looking at the uh, one of the oil and gas uh, workforce uh, reports over the past few days, and um, 
I was I was quite interested to read that even they have a skills shortage as well in their industry. So I think skills is going to be a huge challenge, uh, in particular create the creation of green jobs in our industry. And and we are there is an element at least of of, of thinking that we can re uh, reskill or upskill people from oil and gas into into renewables. And and of course I'm. I'm one of those people. I, I came from oil and gas myself. I spent 20 years in, in oil and gas projects before turning to the green side. Um, but if the oil and gas industry are also struggling to uh, hire people, then you can you, you know you can imagine that, that it's going to be quite difficult for us as well. And we see that, and that's why I think we need to start young we need to get into the schools we need to support the schools and the education system to educate them about the benefits of going into renewable energy and i can say that also from from first-hand experience and, and some of my own reflections um you know i i used to think that renewables was the poor cousin of of oil and gas um however once i came into the industry i, I very quickly changed my tune uh, when I saw the extent of these infrastructure projects, the the amount of capex and and devex being invested in them, um, they really are uh, the the best place to be for um, young and talented and and gifted individuals with a whole raft of opportunities in, in renewables and and such extensive uh, um, budgets, if I can put it like that. In order to do lots and lots of very very interesting things, as well as as Richard said, the, there's the moral aspect to this, which is that we're working together to try and change the climate crisis that we're all part of today. Uh, so skills is 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 obviously very important. Um, I think the the other area is access to ports and infrastructure, and. Again, reflecting back on what the, the previous uh, podcast said, just before the announcement of the Scotland round, uh, the, 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 the correspondents there were talking about the transformational impact uh, of roughly a 10 gigawatt win. And as I said, we're now in 28 gigawatt uh, and not including the Intog round, which is going to be announced quite shortly. So there's even greater pressure even greater requirement and even greater um, expectation and uh, capacity gap, uh, especially in ports and infrastructure. And it's going to be very, very interesting uh, how we develop the ports, how we take the ports forward, how we can, um, as uh, developers, how we can help each other or work together uh, and basically have each developer have their uh, requirements met in the port, but at the same time not oversaturate the ports with a huge amount of demand. I think that's fascinating, and I'm especially interested in this idea that we were aware of the potential and the challenges, but what we've actually got on the ground is is three times as much demand as we originally planned. And I think there's a fascinating discussion to be had about you know, younger people and this growing trend towards wanting your employer's values to align with your own and what comes in. But Richard, I'd really like to hear your take on on what you think the challenges and the opportunities around this are. Yeah, picking up on the skills point, I think it's also worth noting that Scotland is not alone and unique in the world here. So not long before Scotland was announced, the round four process was announced in 
England and Wales. Um, we're currently uh, having a bidding process for uh, floating offshore wind in the Celtic Sea. And nearly every country with a coastline in the world at the moment is seeing offshore wind as the, uh, the driver towards delivering its, its net zero target. So globally, we have uh, a very, on the one hand, positive with regards to the move towards renewables. But the challenge is, is that supply chain and skills is, is not a unique uh, issue to Scotland, nor is it something Scotland can take for granted with regards to having all the attention of the world supply chain in delivering on the huge amount of potential that is in Scottish waters. So it's really becoming on us as developers locally. And as we've discussed, you know, the regulators, the government, um, the private bodies that are wanting to deliver in Scotland is to, to be on the foot, front foot in delivery. So we really need to look after ourselves to an extent. And we've seen success, uh, as I said before, around the east coast of England with regards to delivering skills. And, and we've got a great opportunity to use transferable skills from the oil and gas industry. Um, morally, uh, as Nick suggested, you know, we paint a better picture for the future than the oil and gas industry does. And I think that attracts a great many people. And we've got good experience in going into schools and colleges and setting up the right pieces of the puzzle to make sure that we have skills in the future. Entertainingly, one of the things that I'm, I'm very aware of is actually population density in the north of Scotland is not exactly high. So whereas historically where we've done this uh, in in England, you, you've got a lot of people to work with to an extent. Actually, in, you know, in the, the north of Scotland, there's not that many people either. So we need to overcome that. Um, and, you know, it's a very exciting opportunity to do so in that in that basis. With regards to ports, that that end of itself is 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 a difficult one. It's um, it requires a lot of investment, uh, and for developers to be spending the money that's required to develop those ports right now, that that's challenging without certainty of delivery of the projects. And I say that with regards to you know ensuring that we get consent, ensuring we get the route to market that we need, uh, and that the political uh, mindset will continue irrelevant of any elections or or change of parties in power. So we need to, to, to work on that one in particular. It's, it's making sure that the investment is there at the right time. Um, and for us as developers, we have the certainty we need to be able to make those decisions. Thanks for that, Nick. I think it's a really, really important point that when you have a new industry and there's transformation, you really do need to open up the market to anyone with the the interest, the passion, the skills, it's got to be one of those really open and welcoming industries and, and approaches. But I think this is a really good time to actually ask, what do you really think are the most important things that need to be done? Because we know that skills are important, but I do know there's so much else. I mean, Richard, what's your take on this? So if I was going to uh, you know, pick two or three things that uh, absolutely I think can be done and should be done as quickly as possible. So first off, grid. H&D2 needs to be a uh, an output that we can all believe in um, and then needs to be followed very, very quickly from Ofgem, uh, providing an explanation of how we're going to deal with the offshore transmission assets um, because those two elements are clearly fundamental to delivering an offshore wind farm. We need to get the energy to the people um, and we need to have the certainty. So one, we can get the, the planning permissions that we need to be able to build it but the certainty on investment. So, so they're, they're absolutely critical. Um, secondly, we need to have a clear strategy for skills. Now that, that comes between 
both developers and local councils, education bodies, um, renewables, trade bodies. But again, we, we've done it before um, and there's no reason why we, we can't do it again. But, but addressing that point, because we want to address it early and make sure that we're educating the next generation and current generations for supporting the projects as we, we go to the future. And then probably the third the third big one for me is the permitting process. So a lot of the industry talks about accelerating the, the permitting process and, and that it can be done quicker. And I, and I don't doubt that for a second, but I'd focus for the moment on let's get the decisions on time and in a robust nature. That means they're not challenged immediately. I think if we can do that and we have the, the full-throated support of the regulators in delivering solutions to the environmental impacts that offshore wind brings about, then then that will lead us forward much more efficiently than where we currently are at the moment. Excellent. Thank you. And Nick, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think I completely share Richard's view and really the consenting process is a significant challenge not just for us and for every developer. I have to say, I think there is a particular concern here, uh, just as we've discussed earlier, and it's really the concern of consenting on a project-by-project basis versus consenting on a more holistic view. And really, if we look at the if we look at this issue on a project-by-project basis, the the various derogation measures and, and mitigation measures that have to go in um, very quickly, uh, you could say, are used up. And what this means, or what this could mean in essence, is that the, the latter projects that are coming through may have to be constrained in some way because of this uh, lack of available derogation and mitigation measures that have been used up by the, the prior projects. And really, that could be a bit of a, an issue uh, if we look at the at the bigger picture um, because where we are living in a world where we need access to green energy, where we live in a world where energy is a strategic resource and the getting access to cheap uh, energy is vital to the success of, uh, of society, you could say. Um, having a... Uh, a consenting uh, process whereby you know some projects could be constrained or in the very very worst case there could be attrition of projects um, that that's a bit of a conundrum and uh, I just think that we need to move away from this uncertainty and that we need to get a, 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 a statement on this we need to get some uh, feedback and some action from the main stakeholders and the regulators here to make sure that this is cleared up and to make sure that all the Scottish projects uh, have an equal chance of uh, developing. And um, that's not, not just from a Norsted point of view, but that that's, uh, as I said, to provide cheap green electrons as quickly as possible to the market. So I, I actually think this is a really nice place to leave this conversation on. Because what we're really talking about is the fact that the opportunity is three times the size that we thought it would be. We do face challenges in the market, 
but actually we also know exactly what we need to do to make it work. So I think I'm just going to thank both Richard and Nick for joining us today for the first episode of season two of Giga Waters. It was a great chat and I'm looking forward to the rest of the installments to follow. To our listeners, if you'd like to share your thoughts about what's been discussed today, you can find us on social media or you could drop us an email at outloud at energyvoice.com. Don't forget to tune in to Energy Voice's weekly podcast episode where the Energy Voice team discuss the latest goings on in the energy sector, ranging from oil and gas to renewables. If you're yet to do so, please do subscribe free to Energy Voice Out Loud on your podcast app of choice. And listen out for more episodes of Giga Waters going forward. I'm Felicia Jackson. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.